Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Austin Johnson. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, hello, good morning. Uh, I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been here. Some Charlotte people. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, I've been here about four and a half years. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Sarah, for about two and a half years. And just a fun fact about me, I am an avid pickleball player. Uh, so if any of you want to lose in pickleball, you can come and see me, and I would be honored uh, to, to teach you a lesson or two. But today, I'm excited. We're continuing on in our sermon series about creating space as we look through the gospel of John together. Kind of where we're going this morning is kind of the target is we're going to see that Jesus disrupts the use of religion for profit, position, and power, and he creates space for the abused and the abuser to be radically changed by his supernatural love. So we just read a passage this morning that was pretty, maybe if you've grown up in church, kind of familiar to you. We're actually going to be continuing, we're going to look at this passage of Jesus entering into the temple, and we're actually going to look at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, so kind of it's this, continue on with this framework of, we're going to see Jesus addressing the quote-unquote spiritual elite. Okay, when I say the spiritual elite, that's kind of when what would have been happening in Jesus' day and age probably would have been the average person that grew up in church today. Uh, It's kind of the person that grew up, they knew all the right things, they lived really moral lives, they maybe had some scripture memorized, they went to church on Sunday, they went to the temple. So this is kind of this idea of, man, how does Jesus actually interact with the spiritual elite? They, They knew all these things, but somehow they still missed it. And if I'm honest, I'm, I'm really excited to, you know, be sharing this morning because I feel like for a large part of my life, this has actually been my story. Uh, and in many ways, I feel like this is kind of Jesus speaking to me and me having an opportunity to look back of, man, in my life, where have I missed it? Like I've had a lot of things memorized. I've known a lot of scripture. I grew up in the church. I did all these right things. But somehow, I think for a lot of my life, I, I missed it. So I'm really excited today to see the space that Jesus creates for me. And maybe that sounds like it's part of your story today, too. So we're going to look at the first part of our text here together. Andre, thank you so much for reading it. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Read with me one more time. The Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get out, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So whether you've heard this passage before or this is maybe the first time that you've heard this passage, uh, when you think about Jesus and you just kind of get this picture in your mind, I'm going to guess that Jesus walking into the room and flipping over all the tables is not the mental image that comes to your mind. Right? You probably have this image of, man, there's this guy that's kind of walking in with peace. Maybe there's some light rays walking out of him. 
But there's this image of man. Jesus is entering into the temple, and he's not happy about what he sees. Like he, to the point where he's flipping over tables, and he's addressing people here. He enters into the temple courts, he looks around, and sees the sights, he smells the animals, and he sees what's going on, and he's not interested. Because the temple courts, the space that Jesus walks into, is, it, it was meant to be some, a place that people that were far from God could come and could experience him. A place where they could actually come and meet with God. Maybe a pilgrim or someone else, a, a Gentile, coming to worship so on the outside, the space Jesus is walking into, it's like, okay, Jesus, this is meant to be a space for people to come and meet with God. So why are you flipping over the tables? Why is Jesus walking in and he's at this point of his, his emotion has driven him to action? We see it in verse 17. Jesus says, zeal for your house will consume me. Now the word zeal literally means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus has this zeal for God's house. Which I think just right off the bat kind of teaches me that God actually cares about his church. God actually really cares about his church, not just the building, but the people. God cares about us. So it's this zeal that leads him to address what he sees is really going on here. Because in this cultural day and moment, it was actually normal for there to be things being bought and sold in the temple courts. It was actually really normal because people needed to buy sacrifices so that they could be, be right with God. So on the outside, Jesus is walking in. He's turning over the tables. But it's like, hold on. That's actually kind of what they were there for. It was actually necessary for people to be able to buy and sell these animals so that they could make sacrifices to God. So why is Jesus overturning something that, at least on the outside, is actually really necessary, that people needed to be able to have intimacy with God. Because on the outside, it may have looked good, but inwardly, Jesus sees something different. I think we see this in verse 16. It says, He told those who are selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So what Jesus is doing here, he's contrasting these two ideas of his father's house and a marketplace. So on the outside, whatever is going on may have been okay, but Jesus is looking not at the people that are buying things, but the people that are actually selling them. He's looking at the people that are kind of behind what's going on. He's looking into them and going, you've turned this place away from being part of my father's house and into a marketplace. Pastor John Piper would describe this contrast this way, that my father's house means that this house is about knowing and loving and treasuring a person. That is the father. And in this temple, my father's name is meant to be supreme. He is the supreme treasure. The idea that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. These people, when they enter into the temple, this was meant to be a place where they could come and they could meet with God. The church that they walked into was meant to be a safe place that they could actually come and meet with God. But he looks at the people that have been kind of putting this on and going, hey, you've turned this away from what its intended purpose was and something for your own profit, something to serve yourself. Jesus' anger and emotion, it's not actually directed towards the pilgrims 
the people that are coming and buying. He's actually looking at the people that are putting this on and going, you, you've turned this place away from what it was intended to be. Instead of an overflow of loving Jesus and loving God, you've, you've begun to love yourself. And your own greed and desire has turned this into something that it was never meant to be. Jesus is looking at the religious elite, if you will. He's speaking to those who abuse their spiritual power that they have been given for personal gain. Outwardly, everything may have been doing the right things, everyone, but inwardly, they had allowed the temple to become less about treasuring and discovering the beauty of Yahweh and more about their own personal gain, profit, greed, and status. So instead of the temple being a place where they could discover the beauty of Jesus, a place to commune with God, it become a place for profit, greed, and exclusion. Behind the actions of these religious leaders and the religious elite were thousands of people that would come daily that were on the receiving end of a negative heart posture. They were ultimately caught up in this idea that, man, they were using this system for their own self-gain, and Jesus comes in, and this is not what it was meant to be. This was meant to be a place where people can come and discover the Father and said, man, you're using this and abusing this system for your own personal gain. So it would be just this idea that Jesus comes in, he's addressing the spiritual elite, these people that use something that was always meant to glorify God for their own glory. I think it would be amiss to even share this story without recognizing that uh, maybe there's some people in this room that maybe your own experience with the church and with Jesus and religious leaders has maybe even been similar. You've been in a culture and an environment where, man, there are leaders or pastors. It's, you know, it's all over the news these days of pastors falling that you've actually been in an environment where you've been on the receiving end of a religious leader abusing their spiritual power. And perhaps it's even led to a marred view of the church and maybe even God himself. So I just want to say, man, I'm I'm sorry if that's your story, that your pain is valid and your story matters. You're seen and you're loved. So that's why Jesus, he's entering into the temple, this temple that was the center point of worship and communion with God. He enters in and he looks beyond the religious duties, morals, and good works, and he says, I'm not impressed. You've missed the point. You've gotten so good at doing the right things, at performing the right duties, but you've missed the point. You've abused the position of spiritual authority that you've been given And you've exploited it for personal gain, all while doing it in the name of God. But this is, I think, what really stood out to me this week as I was reading this text. That Jesus didn't just enter into the temple to point out what was going wrong. It's easy, especially in our culture where pastors are following. There's all these podcasts about the rise and fall of various churches. It's easy to look around and point the finger at what's going wrong. But what we see Jesus as he, he does come in and he addresses people, but the story does not end there. He doesn't just point out what's going wrong. Jesus did not come to just tear the temple down, condemn it, and point the finger. He came to restore it back to what it was always meant to be. This is what it says in verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus is pointing to the reality that this temple is going to pass away. This physical thing that you see is going to pass away. I have not just come down to destroy it, but actually to restore what my temple was always meant to be to redeem it and to restore it. That in me, in Jesus, that I'm actually building a new temple that does not pass away. Where there is always a safe place to come and discover the beauty of Jesus. Jesus does not come simply pointing the finger with condemnation, but he has come to redeem, restore, renew, and to restore in this story, we see Jesus addressing the, spirit, the religious elite who abused their power and position while creating space for the spiritually abused to discover his beauty. Jesus did not give up on his body, on his church. He's come to redeem it, restore it, and restore it, not destroy it. But for so many of us, I, I think uh, Scripture would say that the temple... God's church is not a physical place anymore. Like we actually, each and every one of us, are now God's body united together. But I also think for many of us, we've allowed our own hearts to become marketplaces, if you will. We've trusted in power, position, whatever it is that's relevant in your life, that man, I'm actually trusting in that instead of trusting in Jesus. That I've allowed my heart to become a marketplace for whatever gives me power, position, and purpose. But the good news is that Jesus came and he's already given us all of those things. That Jesus has already come and saying those things are going to pass away. Put not your hope and your trust in the things that you can see, but come to me. Let me restore you. Let me restore you, your body, that is this living temple into what it was always meant to be to reflect my image and my glory. My heart often becomes a marketplace for whatever gives me power, position, and purpose. But the good news is that Jesus gives me all of those things. So as we, we look at the story of Jesus entering into this, the temple, I just want to ask this question. Thinking about the temple, if your body is a temple, what's in your house? What are you trusting in? What is giving you your sense of power, position, and purpose maybe outside of Jesus? What's begun to, at least on the outside, you're sure you're doing all the right things. You've got all the verses memorized. You're still here at church. But what's actually in your house? What actually is going on in your heart? What are you trusting in? And what would allowing Jesus to restore and restore your heart for his church look like? Jesus' plan A for changing the world 
is his church, his body, his bride. There is no plan B. There is no plan B of Jesus to change the world. Jesus goes, I'm going to fill the, Ephesians talks about this. I'm filling the earth with my glory, and the way that he's doing that is through his people. God's plan A for transforming the world is through his church. There is no plan B. But that requires us to ask the question, what is actually inside of us? And what's in your house? What are you trusting in? And what would it look like to join with Jesus and not give up on his church? I know for a lot of us in this room, like I said, you may have been hurt by the church in some really significant ways. And Jesus still has not given up on his body and his bride. He's, in, he's inviting us to redeem and restore and be restoried into his intention and his design. So what's in your house? and What are you trusting in? So Jesus walks into the temple. He kind of addresses the religious elite corporately, if you will. Kind of this big picture of what's, we've allowed something that was good to become something that's not good. Not because of what's going on on the outside, but what's going on on the inside. And we see the story of Jesus meeting with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, has anybody seen The Chosen TV show? Okay, there's a lot of you that need to, as soon as we're done here, go home and binge watch The Chosen, okay? It's amazing. Uh, there's this scene in The Chosen. It's, I've watched it three or four times this week, uh, and I've cried every single time. Uh, and it's Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, okay? So we think about who Jesus is addressing corporately, we now get to have, see Jesus have a conversation with one of those people privately and in person. Nicodemus, he was on what was called the Sanhedrin. Anybody know what the Sanhedrin? Heard of that before? Okay, some people. Okay, if you don't know, the Sanhedrin was the top 70 Jewish experts that kind of ruled over the Jewish religion, customs, and laws. Okay, so Jesus is sitting down with one of the top 70 experts in Judaism. Okay, like the religious leaders of leaders. He's having this conversation, and Nicodemus comes to him, and we're going to see it in just a second. He's like, Jesus, we know that there's something different about you. What is it? I've heard, I, literally, one of the top 70 experts in the world, I literally know all this stuff, but I'm still missing out on something. And he's coming to Jesus, what am I missing? I know all those stories. I've heard all the, the books. What am I missing? So look with me at John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to see Jesus' kind of corporate conversation with the religious elite. gets a little bit more personal. John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. There's a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him at night, which just signifies something. Nicodemus coming to him at night means he's afraid to meet with Jesus publicly. Because he's afraid about what are other people going to think they see me having a conversation with Jesus. So he comes to him at night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. I think it's important that John points out that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Why would he do that? Why don't you say, hey, this man Nicodemus came to meet with Jesus at night? Why is he actually pointing out that, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee? And I think he points it out because he's trying to convey that the, the religion of Nicodemus was not enough for him. 
Religion was not enough to save Nicodemus. He knew something else was missing from his heart and his life. He knew all the answers. He had everything memorized. Literally one of the top 70 experts in the world at this time. He's going, I'm still missing something. There's still something inside of me that is broken and that's missing. That's why he's coming to Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he says, look, we all know that there's something different about you. Last week we heard about the wedding at Cana. It's like you literally turn water into wine. We've seen you doing these amazing things. We know something's different about you. What am I missing? This is what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus is telling Nicodemus what he's missing, being born again. But Nicodemus, I don't know, I don't get that. So I'm supposed to crawl back up into my mother's womb. Nicodemus is probably older, so he's like, sorry, my mom's dead. Like, that's not possible. Uh, and Jesus is like, no, you're, you're missing the point. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus says in verse 5, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus is about, about is the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking to Nicodemus about. This is the one thing that Nicodemus had always been hoping for with his whole life. Kind of the, old, the whole Old Testament was this story pointing to this reality that one day God is going to send a Messiah to come and bring his kingdom in the day of the Lord. So Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about something that his heart has always wanted. His mind is always known about, but his heart has yet to experience. I think from in my own story, I grew up with a lot of my mind knowing a lot about something, but my heart not actually experiencing it. This is the one thing he'd been looking for, the coming kingdom of the Messiah who's going to bring restoration. But to take part of this kingdom, it would require Nicodemus to be born again. Being born again, it's this invitation of coming to something new. What has been, what we have been depending on and trusting in is not sufficient. Jesus, Nicodemus' religion was not sufficient. Birth is the beginning of life. We're all born into this world as sons and daughters of Adam. But to live in this world and to live in God's kingdom, we must be born again as sons and daughters of King Jesus. This kingdom is not something that Nicodemus could see. Jesus uses the illustration of the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can hear it. You can feel it. You can see what happens when the wind enters into the space. The kingdom of God is in the same way. So Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? I still don't get it. I still don't understand it. Jesus says in verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel? You don't know these things? Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. 
If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, one of the top 70 experts, religious experts at the time, a member of the religious elite, yet he doesn't get it. So how can Jesus talk to him about more significant things, heavenly things, if he doesn't understand earthly things? So Jesus gives him a story from Scripture, a story that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. In the wilderness, as the nation of Israel is walking through the wilderness, there's this moment where all these snakes start appearing and biting them. Now, I don't know about you. As a kid, my worst nightmare is I would be wake up in the middle of my yard and snakes coming at me from every single direction. And that's why I would, I would wake up in, in sweats. Like, I hate snakes. Snakes are the absolute worst. I'm lucky. Anybody actually seen a snake in Texas? I've never seen a snake in Texas. Okay, a lot of people. Uh, I've been here four and a half years. I've yet to see a snake in Texas. Let's hope that uh, continues. The snakes were my worst nightmare. So the story, the people of Israel walking in the wilderness, and these snakes come out and start to, to bite them, and the people are dying. They cry out to God, God, would you save us? God tells Moses, and make this, this bronze staff with a serpent on it and lift it up. And as soon as the people see this, then they'll be healed. And Jesus is saying, hey, just like what happened back then, that's what I've come here to do. That's the story he's given. In verse 16, you've probably heard of this before. But it says, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. The type of kingdom that Jesus had come to bring was not a kingdom that was going to overthrow the Roman government which is what everybody thought. The Messiah came. He was coming to overthrow the current political powers. But Jesus is saying, I've not come to overflow it, overthrow that. The kingdom that Jesus was bringing wasn't about that. It was about sin. Sin is what separates us from God. So what happens when we stop trusting in God and we start trusting anything else, people, power, possessions, religion, to give us satisfaction, sustenance, and life. But Jesus is communicating here that the good news of the gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus. That Jesus did not come to bring condemnation, but restoration. It's God's love that compelled him to send Jesus to rescue, redeem, and restore it. Nicodemus had missed it his whole life. I missed it. Most of my life. I learned 
how to read a book. Nicodemus learned how to read a book. He had most of it probably memorized. Steve, you probably know this more than I do, but I'm pretty sure like by the age of eight, if you were a Jewish student, you had to have the whole Torah memorized. Like by Nicodemus's point, he memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are some pretty hefty books, right? If you try to do a memorization project, start out with Leviticus and see how far you get. Like this guy knew Scripture. But the whole time he missed God. He missed Jesus. He missed the kingdom. And Jesus is inviting him to come and see, to let his supernatural love transform him. Nicodemus learned how to sit with a book, but he never learned how to sit with a person. He never learned how to sit with Jesus, how to sit with, with God. He had forgotten how to actually commune with God. And so it just makes me even ask the question, have I learned how to just sit with a book in the morning? I know how to read this, but have I actually forgotten how to sit with a person, how to sit with Jesus? The point is Jesus. It's not just memorizing scripture. That's good. That's very helpful. But if we miss Jesus, what's the point? What Jesus is indicating to Nicodemus is what he's inviting us into today. He looks at Nicodemus. He looks at us. And he says, you don't have to miss it anymore. You can come and see. Come and look upon the Son of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Come and see the kingdom of God. Come taste and see. Don't just look and know. The story of Nicodemus is a story of invitation, that Jesus sits at the table with me and with you and with Nicodemus. He's inviting us not simply to sit with a book, but to sit with him to sit with a person, to come back to who Jesus is. The application here is oftentimes our hearts use a library of knowledge, stories, and morality to escape the hole inside of us. But the good news is that Jesus came to give us new hearts, and our hearts that we've always longed for, safety, renewal, salvation, and love. Jesus entering into the temple and addressing the religious elite corporately is him coming in and going, you've missed it. You've missed the point. You can do all the right things, but if your heart is far from me, then you've missed it. I'm not after just what you do. I'm after who you are. And Jesus' plan A for rescuing the world is his church, so he has not given up on his church. He's come to rescue, redeem, and restore his church. And then as he sits with us personally, he actually steps into the thing that we're depending on, that we have been trusting in. He says, it's, it's about coming back to me. Don't just learn how to sit with spiritual disciplines. Learn how to sit with me. Have we missed Jesus? We've gotten really good at learning a lot about Jesus, maybe sitting through Jesus, but have we forgotten to sit with Jesus? That's why I love taking moments of silence. You can't run. What does it actually mean to be with Jesus? Some of my favorite YouTubers. Have you ever heard of Yes Theory? I'm the only one. Wow, a couple people. Okay, hello. Uh, there's, this, uh, there's this one where this guy goes into this darkness retreat, Okay. 96 hours of total darkness, okay, sensory deprivation, right? And he's scared out of his mind. 
Like this is the one thing that he is most afraid of. Their motto is seeking discomfort. And his, his, one of his best friends kind of makes a statement to him. Is, he says, do you think the reason you're most afraid of this is because you're not able to run away from your biggest fear, which is yourself, your own thoughts, your own emotions? And when I think we think about sitting with Jesus, man, do we actually know how to sit with Jesus with who we actually are? Not just the projected, I know the right answers, God is good, bless his name. But man, when life is hard, do I know how to sit with Jesus in transparency and honesty and pour out my heart before God? That's what Jesus is after. Not perfection, not just doing all the right things. Man, may we come to know to sit with Jesus. So as we wrap up our, our time here this morning, I'd love for you to think these next 120 seconds. And what is Jesus speaking to you? Maybe that's something that's in your house. What, what, what type of marketplace have you allowed your heart to become? What have you been depending in? Are you able to sit with Jesus or just sit through Jesus? So we'll take 120 seconds and just ask these questions. What is Jesus speaking to you? And what are you going to do about it? Take 120 seconds, and we'll come back together in just a couple minutes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's Word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.